Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Tonight we have a very special guest who is an incredible author, attorney, professional speaker, consultant. He's everything. And let me tell you about him because you are going to be so impressed. Jonathan Kirsch is an attorney and author of 12 books, including seven books on the history of religion and religious texts, two novels, and two books on publishing law. He's contributed book reviews to the Los Angeles Times for more than 30 years, and he appears as a commentator and guest host on NPR affiliates in Southern California. He also serves on the adjunct faculty of New York University's professional publishing program. Jonathan has served as legal counsel on a pro bono basis, which is for free, for many organizations. He also is the legal counsel or general counsel for the Independent Book Publishers Association, which presented him with the Benjamin Franklin Award for Special Achievement in Publishing back in 1994. And he writes and lectures on legal topics relating to the publishing industry for numerous associations and legal forums. Before embarking on the practice of law, Jonathan Kirsch was senior editor of California Magazine, where he specialized in a coverage of law, government, and politics. And previously, he worked as West Coast correspondent for Newsweek as an editor for West and Home Magazines at the Los Angeles Times and a reporter for the Santa Cruz Sentinel. You can learn a lot more about him and his legal practice and his books at Jonathan Kirsch, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-K-I-R-S-C-H dot com, and also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Jonathan, first of all, you are 
really impressive. And I got to ask you, how do you have time to write 12 books, do all these things, all this writing, and be legal counsel for intellectual property and have a family? How do you do all that? Well, the the simple answer is that I uh, writing is my first love. I've uh, aspired to write since I was a kid in elementary school, and it gives me such pleasure to do it and such satisfaction to do it that I find time to do it. I, I often tell people that there are a lot of lawyers out there who wouldn't miss a starting time for their golf game. Uh, they manage to fit that into a busy practice. For me, it's the writing of books. Uh, and then the other uh, part of the answer is uh, I was most actor- active, I have been most active, uh, once my kids were uh, in high school and college. Uh, there's no question I wasn't writing many books when I had young children at home. Right. So now that they do their own thing, you have a chance to do your own thing, right? That's right. right. Yeah. Now, how is it that you began writing about religion and that became such an interest to you? Well, I was a Jewish history major in college. I studied history from a secular point of view. I was raised in a religiously observant household. Uh, So religion, the Jewish religion was part of my upbringing and my identity. Uh, and I, uh, like, like so many people who go off to college, uh, I was exposed to new ways of thinking about religion in general, but very specifically about the Bible. What, what made a deep impression on me was that the Bible had human authors, and we could know things, find out things about those authors, who they were, what they believed in, what they were setting out to do when they wrote down these texts. And I began to make a study of it. What could we know about the human authors of the Bible? And that curiosity uh, is what has driven me through seven books on the history of uh, the Bible and of religion in general. And you're a history fanatic, too, aren't you? Well, history is my love. That's what I write about, and that's what I love to read about. So uh, it, it is the focus of my work as a writer. Yeah, and people may be wondering, well, why is it, Mari, that you pulled him on when you have this show called Privacy Piracy? But I think the whole idea of religion, and that is a private matter that becomes a public matter, and that also becomes a a society matter in many, many ways. And I just finished reading this book, and I want to talk today about the Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God, when I saw that book, I said, oh, my gosh, I have to read that. I have to see it. And it is incredibly enlightening. And it's also a little bit terrifying just to even read it and, and see what has happened in the name of God. So let's talk a little bit about this book. If And what prompted you to write this particular book? Well, I want to say, first of all, uh, by way of affirmation to what you have just uh, said, that I think my books are perfectly appropriate for the theme of your show, uh, and especially the book about the Inquisition, because we have been engaged in a 500-year struggle to win the right of privacy in the sense uh, that we uh, cherish the freedom to believe in a religion, to choose which religion to believe in, what mix of religions to believe in, And we as Americans deeply resent anyone telling us uh, what to believe, and we resent people intruding into our private belief systems. 
what my books are about is how we came to that value and how we have had to struggle to protect that value, the value of personal privacy. Uh, freedom of religion uh, can be understood as a subset of the right of privacy, just as the right to choose uh, whether to have an abortion is a subset of the right of privacy. Uh, I have written three of my seven books on subjects that I think directly link to this very modern concern. Uh, I wrote a book about called God Against the Gods, which is about the encounter between monotheism and polytheism in the ancient world. I wrote a book called The History of the End of the World, which is about the book of Revelation and how it's been used and abused in modern American politics. And I must say, I have that right in front of me, and I started reading it, and it is incredible as well. Well, it says a lot about American politics, as yes. much about politics as about religion. Yes. And then, of course, the, the Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of the Inquisition, is very explicitly about how governments intrude into the private lives, even the private minds, of their citizens. Exactly. The Inquisition was the first example in history where uh, an inquiry was made not merely what you do as a citizen, but what you think. Yes, yes. Now, so what prompted you to write this book about the Grand, I mean, that particular book about the Grand Inquisition or what? the Inquisitor's Manual? Sure. I, I think of my seven books as a, a, a Evolution. Journey, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's a step-by-step -step journey through the history of the Judeo-Christian text. So my first book begins with Genesis and the Bible, the oldest text of the Bible, and I move forward in history. Uh, as I move forward, I come upon what I must say are ever more examples of how dangerous religion can be, and I and I came to uh, the Inquisition as perhaps the single uh, best example of how uh, things can go terribly wrong when church and state ally themselves in service of a particular religious truth. Uh, and in many ways, I argue this in my book, uh, the American democracy that we cherish and, 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 and defend was invented in reaction to the Inquisition. The Founding Fathers understood clearly what happened when a secular government endorsed and it, or embraced a particular state religion, and they built a wall between church and state to prevent that from happening again, and they very much had the Inquisition in mind. And it really goes to the heart of liberty, which is what we believe in in our country, democracy and liberty. So liberty and religion go hand in hand, right? Absolutely. It is the most intimate and personal uh, choice that a person can make, what they believe in the innermost uh, hearts and minds. And uh, the idea that a, a, a man in a hood uh, can take you into a, a, a torture chamber and torture you into confessing that you believe something that he uh, disapproves of is so repugnant to us. It's like a, a scene out of a nightmare, and it has been rendered many times in literature in just that way. Uh, but, it, but it is a fact of history. And as I, as I try to point out in my book, in one way or another, it has reared its ugly head again and again around the world, throughout history, and even in America, and even in our own time.
And, and yes, you know, you know, I like the way you pulled it through Nazi Germany and through the Gulag and Russia and the Massachusetts Bay Colony with the witches and then bring it all the way up through McCarthy. And then even like you said today about Guantanamo, I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, they, they don't recognize that some of the same stuff that went on in the Middle Ages is happening today and repeated. And if you don't understand history, you will repeat it. And that's what's so scary. That is what is so terrifying and why I thought your book was so important to read, even though I don't think it was great for me to read it at night before I go to bed at times because it got me upset and, and it was it was disturbing, but yet it was incredibly enlightening and inspiring at the same time. Let's talk a little bit about this. You know, most people think of the Spanish Inquisition as the Inquisition. But your book starts a lot earlier. So why don't you tell us what the Inquisition was really about and how it started way before the Spaniards? Sure. In many of my books, uh, what I try to tell, uh, share with my readers is uh, the notion that what they think they know is, is wrong. Uh, there's a lot of conventional wisdom that turns out to be uh, unfounded in historical fact. And a lot of it attaches to the Inquisition. Uh, the Inquisition began in the early 13th century, that is the 1200s, the early 1200s, when the Catholic Church noticed that some Christians were practicing a form of Christianity that uh, was at odds with the approved dogma of the Catholic Church. And the popes of the late Middle Ages decided uh, to do something about it. Now, the very, uh, the very first victims of the Inquisition was a group of Protestants well, we, we, let's call them dissident Christians. There was not yet anything we would call Protestantism that early. Right, a sec- uh, just a different sect, right. They were a sect of Christianity that would, looks a lot like what would later become Protestantism. Uh, they were called the Cathars, and they were most active in southern France. And the Pope said, these Christians are the wrong kind of Christians, and we're going to exterminate them. And in order to accomplish that, the Pope in Rome enlisted the aid... The, uh, entered into alliances with the secular authorities of, of uh, kingdoms and principalities across Christendom. That was the beginning of the Inquisition. It was a formal process. There were formal documents drafted and signed, legal documents and legal treaties. And on the basis of those documents, the Inquisition came into existence. This is in the early 1200s. And what's shocking uh, to, to most of my readers is that it remained in existence for the next 600 years. Uh, it did not go fully out of existence until uh, 1826. That was the last person put to death by the Inquisition, and it wasn't dismantled officially until 1834. So we're talking about 600 years of operation across Europe and actually in the New World as well. Yes, and yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it was in it, Cortez. I mean, I think about, you know, I'm, I'm a student of Spanish and Spanish is I'm fluent in Spanish and took Spanish history and took all of the art of Mexico. And when you look at Cortez and all those conquistadores who came, what did they do? They came in the name of religion, right? Ferdinand and Isabel uh, sent them over there. And not only did they come in the name of religion, but they brought the Inquisition with them. Right. Uh, and they uh, said either convert from, you know, many of the Indian religions there. They said either convert from being, you know, in the Aztecs and the Toltecs and all of them, either convert or die. Right? And correct. there's there's all sorts of 
you know, art about that, what they did to the indigenous population over there. Well, the proposition of the Inquisition was that there was one, uh, one true faith, it was the Catholic faith, and it was that particular uh, uh, set of uh, beliefs that the Pope approved of, the Catholic dogma, which, uh, by the way, is, is a moving target. It changes from uh, time to time over history. But whatever it was said to be at any particular time was what Catholics were required to believe and do. And if you believed anything differently, you were a heretic and you were at risk of the Inquisition. Uh, now, not only were indigenous peoples persecuted, but uh, Jews and Muslims were persecuted as well. One of the great ironies of the Inquisition is that in that famous year of 1492, the year that uh, Columbus sailed, uh, uh, hoping to find the Orient and ending up in the New World, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, the same monarchs who uh, sent him on his voyages of discovery, issued an edict which said to the Jews of Spain, you must either convert to Catholicism or leave. Uh, now, there are two uh, results of this edict. Those Jews who took the bargain, they took the deal that was being offered and they converted, continued to be persecuted right. because the Inquisition never believed that a Jew could uh, earnestly convert to Catholicism. So anyone who was a former Jew was immediately suspect of continuing to be a secret Jew. Right, and especially if they didn't eat pork, even if they were allergic to pork, it didn't matter. Right. I mean, you said that in there, too. And and the Muslims also. I mean, the... Muslims came a little bit later, but the same deal was offered to them, or the same fate was imposed right. on them. The, the, the Spanish monarchy said you must either convert from Islam to Catholicism or leave, and if you did convert, once again, you came under the... Uh, the authority of the Inquisition, which didn't believe you were an earnest convert. Uh, and then the other result, which is a deep irony and, and has an intimate connection with American history, is that those Jews who left Spain and Portugal to avoid compulsory conversion and went to the New World found that the Inquisition followed them there. Right. So the very first Jews to arrive in the colonies that would later become the United States of America, the very first Jews to land on these shores, were Jews who had run away from uh, Portugal to Brazil to get away from the Inquisition, and then had to run again from Brazil to, the, uh, to North America to get away from the Inquisition in Brazil. Right. And you're a student of Jewish history. So the Jews, way back, in the even in the Middle Ages, they were really persecuted. I mean, although the Catholic Church was after the um, the heretics who were like, you know, the Knights, uh, you know, what do you call them, the Knights of Templar and, and the Cathars. Is that what you call them, the Cathars? Cathars, yeah. Yeah, um, even though they also were, uh, even though they weren't pushing on them, they also were persecuting Jews at that time too, weren't they? Well, uh, Mario, you, you raised two important points, and I, I want to make sure we address both of them. First of all, uh, uh, sadly, tragically, uh, Jews have been the target of, of hatred and persecution long before there was an Inquisition. And so the, the, the history of, of Judaism in Christendom is a very sad and, and sorry history. It's full of tragedy. Uh, so I, I, I want to make the point that the Inquisition didn't invent persecution of Jews, but right. it certainly carried it out with great uh, uh, terror and, and violence. Um, the other point that I want to make is that the Inquisition did not confine itself to Jews and Muslims. It didn't confine itself to indigenous people uh, in the New World. It 
uh, found targets wherever its eye fell. And in fact, the Inquisition was a machinery of persecution that required victims. If they ran out of victims, the, the friar inquisitors who made their living as persecutors and torturers would uh, lose their livelihoods. And so they restlessly looked for new victims wherever they could find them. The Cathars, as I've pointed out, were Christians. They were they're not Jews, they're not Muslims, they were not Indians uh, or Native Americans. They were uh, Christians practicing Christianity in uh, southern France and elsewhere in England. They were simply the wrong kind of Christians. The uh, uh, women who practiced herbal medicine or midwifery came under suspicion of being witches, and the great witch persecution was conducted in part by the Inquisition. The Knights Templar, which was an order of the Catholic Church, these were warrior monks who had taken oaths of obedience to the Pope, uh, who had fought in the Crusades. Uh, what they were guilty of was being too rich. The King yes. of France <laughs> decided that he wanted their treasury. So he, he, called, he contacted the Pope in Rome and said, I'd like you to turn over the machinery of the Inquisition to me so that I can uh, accuse these uh, faithful monks of the uh, Catholic Church of being heretics tortured them into false confessions, and, and take their money. And that's what happened to the Templars. It's not what Dan Brown says uh, in the Da Vinci Code, but right. it is a conspiracy. It's a different right. conspiracy. Right, and and that was what was so interesting about a, what this, this theme throughout your book is that, you know, in the name of God or in the name of, of this one right religion, they were able to do all these other things. Many times they go after the uh, the heretics, so to speak, or those who they wanted to, to call heretics, basically to get their money. It's you know, exactly whether right. it was the Jews who had money or whether it was the Knights of Templar or anyone who they, if they were in need of money to keep this thing going, they would just start accusing. That's right. And that's what's so dangerous about this kind of uh, institutionalized terror. It's like a, it's a weapon and you can turn the crosshairs on this weapon against any target. Uh, I'm sure there were lots of people in the Inquisition who, were, who had convinced themselves that there was one right way to be a Christian, and it was their solemn, sacred duty to make sure nobody was the wrong kind of Christian. I'm sure there were people like that. And I'm sure it was brainwashing. Well, but I, but I would yeah. say that many of those people... Uh, especially those who wielded the instruments of torture, were by nature sadists and uh, simply enjoyed torturing people, and here was a job that allowed them to do it. Right. And then there were people who had no religious motives at all. Uh, they were just greedy. Uh, and, I, and I describe in my book examples of how uh, the Inquisition was turned into a profit-making enterprise yes. by seizing the wealth of the victims whom it accused of heresy, uh, and engaging in wholesale extortion and, uh, uh, and profit-making. You know, and then you you actually made that thread, you know, you showed how that thread came through very similarly with Hitler when he took all the money and all of the property and everything of the Jews during World War II. Well, the continuities between the Inquisition and Nazi Germany are so striking Scary. They suggest uh, that it was a conscious imitation, and there are many points of comparison. 
if you'll permit me, I'd like to name a couple. Yeah, I remember in your book you talk about just wearing the yellow badge. In yeah. in the medieval times, they had to wear the yellow badge if they were a heretic. They had to, That's you know, right. it's almost like the scarlet letter. And then, of course, the the Jews in Germany had to wear the yellow uh, Star of David. That's right. And the, you know, I spoke earlier about how the, in, the Inquisition came into existence because of legal enactments. Well, one of those legal enactments were the so-called canons of the Fourth Lateran Council. This was a church document uh, enacted in the early 1200s. Uh, one of the items in that document was the requirement that Jews wear a distinctive badge. So from the very first uh, legal enactment of the Inquisition, Hitler found, his, uh, found the example of marking his victims, uh, the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, by requiring them to wear a yellow badge. In the Spanish Inquisition, there were elaborate laws that were meant to ensure what they called purity of blood, so that if you had a, you were a Christian, you were a, a practicing, professing Catholic, but you had one Jewish relative somewhere in your distant past, you were held to be uh, tainted, of tainted blood, and that was enough to bring you under the uh, watchful eye of the well, this is precisely what happened with the so-called Nuremberg Laws in Nazi Germany, where Jews were uh, singled out and uh, subjected to persecution if they carried even a fraction of Jewish blood in their veins. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the point that you make uh, is a very compelling one. Uh, just as the victims of the Inquisition over a period of 600 years were forced to surrender all of their possessions, all of their money and property to the Inquisition. Essentially, they were made to pay for the wood that was used to burn them alive at the stake. Uh, Hitler followed that example as well, and Jews who were placed aboard trains to Auschwitz and the other death camps were remarkably charged at the standard passenger rates uh, for the privilege of being carried to their death. Uh, these are some of the striking similarities between the medieval Inquisition and, and the events of the 20th century. We're speaking tonight with the author of the Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God by Jonathan Kirsch. Jonathan is a wonderful guy. He's a terrific attorney, a fabulous author of 12 books, and he's talking to us about the Inquisition. And I have to say, when I read this book, I remembered studying it a little bit. I remember going through Spain to Toledo, where they showed us where there were catacombs and places where the Jews would try and, and keep some of their religion and uh, visiting the mosques, like the mosque in Cordoba, Spain, which no longer was a mosque. You know, the, the Moors were not allowed to have their religion. The, you know, the uh, Muslims weren't allowed to have their religion either, and they would turn all of these beautiful buildings into Catholic uh, churches. So it's, you know, it was very awakening for me, Jonathan, and I just was pretty shocked at some of the stuff that went on. I don't want to go too deep to make people sick while they're driving by or listening on the uh, Internet, but let's talk about some of the horrible torture stuff that went on during this Inquisition, even before Spain. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I want to say, just uh, for, uh, for the edification of anyone who might want to pick up my book, that I consciously decided, after immersing myself in my research, uh, to put all of the, the gory, stomach-turning details about torture and execution into a single chapter. It's chapter <laughs> four. 
and I had it in mind that the uh, readers who were a little bit uh, put off by this could skip Chapter 4. But I also want to say uh, that most people don't skip Chapter 4. It's very deep in human nature. We're interested in knowing. It's like watching a car crash on the freeway. Uh, it catches our imagination. Well, I remember when the Tower of London, when you go through the museum and you see all these horrible torture things, you know, my, when my husband went through it with the kids, because I had a speaking engagement, <laughs> they came back and my husband said his hands were just sopping wet going through yeah. there. He th- he had this feeling that in another lifetime he might have been in that torture chamber. Indeed, and that's, uh, that's a very astute remark. I compliment him <laughs> on it. We should all ask ourselves, uh, how would we feel being placed in, in, in under these uh, tortures and that? Because any person, man, woman, or child, was at risk of it. And this is how terrible uh, the Inquisition was. If uh, we have examples, kids over t- just you know, if they reach ten years old, then they, they that could, happened to them. Yes, right. they could be legally tortured. We have examples that I give in my book of a woman who was a midwife, and she. Uh, was losing business to a competitor, another woman who was also practicing midwifery. And uh, she denounced her business rival to the Inquisition as a witch. She accused her of being a witch, falsely, uh, just to put her out of business. And she was arrested and tried and tortured into confession, a false confession, and burned alive, uh, having done nothing other than practice her profession uh, and a business rival uh, put her in that peril. So uh, you didn't have to be guilty of anything to end up in these torture chambers. Uh, I also want to say, and this is uh, so important, it brings us fully up to the present, uh, we have just completed a period of eight years in American history where an American president uh, called upon his lawyers, the lawyers in service to him, to justify and rationalize the use of torture by American military personnel. Uh, and uh, they came up with all kinds of euphemisms, uh, harsh interrogation techniques, waterboarding, uh, to conceal the fact that what these uh, officers and agents were doing were precisely the same tortures that were done during the Inquisition. Waterboarding is water torture, and it uh, the, the veil was finally pulled away by Eric Holder, the current Attorney General of the United States, during his confirmation hearings, and I must say it did, it did my heart good to hear him say uh, that waterboarding uh, is just a different name and a somewhat prettier name for water torture, which is the same torture that the Inquisition used. And uh, why don't you explain, because I'll tell you, I didn't really understand waterboarding until I read your book. <laughs> yeah. water, waterboarding, water torture is a, a, a devilishly simple form of torture. It requires no special equipment. All you need is a bucket of water and a and, and, and a funnel, a, right? A funnel or a rag, right? And and it is simply the uh, imposing upon the victim the sensation of drowning by pouring water into their mouth and throat. Uh, you can do it with a funnel. You can do it by putting a rag in the victim's mouth and then pouring water down and it seeps through the rag, it leaches through the rag into the throat. Uh, Now, while this is going on, the victim is often uh, tortured in additional ways. The the torturer pounds on the stomach, uh, presses on the chest. Uh, The victim is tied to a board and uh, with head down, so it it, it exaggerates the effect of the 
suffocation or the sensation of suffocation. And it is in the nature of the human anatomy that the sensation of drowning causes a panic response. It causes physical pain. It causes psychological terror. And like all torture, and there are many other tortures, I'd be happy to talk about all of them, but every torture has, has as its goal one simple mechanism, which is to make the victim say something that the torturer wants him to say. Uh, the problem with torture is that the a human being wants the torture to stop. Right, and they'll and say so they'll anything. Say, and, yeah. And this is why uh, there's two ways we can understand this, and they're very illuminating. In the war on terror, uh, using torture to extract what we now call actionable intelligence is futile because the uh, victim doesn't give you accurate, truthful evidence. They tell you what they think you want to hear just to stop the pain. Exactly. Uh, so you don't get actionable intelligence. You get made-up uh, stories. In the case of the Inquisition, the Inquisitors were using standard operating procedures that were written down in what are called Inquisi Inquisitors' Manuals. That's where the title of my book comes from. Right. So, that, yeah, people need to know that there really was a Grand Inquisitors' Manual. There were, and <laughs> more than one. But yes. these were lists of standard questions and legal forms and procedures and advice to the inquisitor on how to properly conduct torture. And one of the, uh, one of the results of using standard lists of questions is that these were leading questions, what lawyers would call a leading question. That is a question that suggests the answer. And if a victim is asked, if 10 victims are asked the same leading question under torture, they're likely to give the same answer. Then the torturer says, well, look, there's a conspiracy because 10 victims attested to the same wrongful act. Well, they, they're overlooking the fact that they all 10 of them were told in, through the question what the torturer wanted to hear, and all 10 of them wanted to get the torturer to stop torturing him. And a leading question, all you have to do is say yes or no. Yes. That's you right. know, you I don't even have to answer. You don't have to know anything. I remember reading in your book where one woman who was the one that was pregnant, and they and then she um, they, she was put to, to fire, you know, on yep. fire, and her baby came out, yep. and they put the baby yep. back in and, and everything, and then she didn't know what it was she, that she was supposed to confess to. Well, this is the other catch-20, well, one of many. You know, I mean, you just say yes or no, and then you don't even know what you did. So all you know is you said yes or no. I, I confess to whatever it is. That's right. And, and let me give you a good example of how this works. Uh, scholars who have studied this in great detail suggest that there was never anything like a witch cult in medieval Europe, even though perhaps 100,000 women were burned alive as witches. Uh, but the whole scenario of the witch cult originated with the Inquisition itself. They came up with a uh, an idea that witches ride on brooms, they go to Black Sabbaths, and engage in orgies. But the reason, once they had that thought in their own dirty minds, their own dirty imaginations, and began to propose these questions to frightened, terrorized, physically. Uh, exhausted women under torture, they would all say, yes. Did you ride a broomstick? Uh, yes, I did. Did you have sex with the devil? Yes, I did. And so they they began to collect evidence, which they asserted uh, was evidence of an actual witch cult to which actual women belonged. What historians believe is that there was never any such thing, that this was entirely invented by the torturers and the inquisitors themselves. 
Ah, it's horrible. We're speaking with the author of the Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God, which is still going on this day. And this is by Jonathan Kirsch, who is an attorney and national best-selling author of 12 books. Jonathan, so l- let's get back to this. What a lot of this torture and a lot of this inquisition was really done in secret. Talk about privacy, right? H- how is it that you could learn or we can learn so much about this even though it was done in private? Well, this is a very interesting uh, issue and it ties right into your your concerns about privacy issues in American society today. The Inquisition operated on a principle of fear and intimidation. They wanted people to be deeply, deeply afraid of what happened behind the closed doors of the Inquisition, uh, knowing that the human imagination will be more terrorized by what it doesn't know than by what it does know. Uh, So the procedures of the Inquisition began with a public sermon an inquisitor would come to a locality and preach a sermon calling on all men and women and children to confess their heresies and put themselves at the mercy of the inquisition. If they failed to, and that was a public event, if they failed to confess, they were at risk of being secretly denounced to the inquisition uh, by accusers whose names would never be revealed, the accusations would never be revealed, the specific charges against them would never be revealed, All of the uh, proceedings would take place behind closed doors. Uh, They had to guess at what they were being accused of. They had to guess who was accusing them. Uh, They were subject to torture, which was conducted in dungeons uh, out of the sight of the public. And at the other end of this machinery of persecution emerged uh, these victims who would either have confessed or have been convicted without confessing, And then there was another great public spectacle called the Auto de Fe, a very famous uh, event of medieval Europe, which was a great public gathering at which the crowds would uh, come around and watch the victims of the Inquisition as they were burned alive. Even kids. I mean, it was a whole community would come out, right? Oh, the crowd. Well, this was a great public event. This says says something very alarming about uh, the human taste for... uh, watching uh, horror, horror. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were public hangings in England until late in the 19th century. This is not the only place where there were public displays of violence. They didn't have horror movies, so they had to go. <laughs> they didn't, but they had horror, they had right. books and paintings that portrayed right. very horrible scenes. Right. But this was a live show. Right. You have to think of this as like a football game or a, a like the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum. That's right, exactly. <laughs> and what would happen, whether it be great spectacle, heraldry, trumpets, music, vendors, uh, huge colorful uh, pageants and displays, uh, the ceremony at which they marched the victims of the Inquisition to the place of burning was itself uh, like, a gray, like the Rose Parade. It was a very uh, elaborate public spectacle, and it was offered both for the entertainment of the public and also as a caution. Don't uh, uh, stray from the accepted truths that you're permitted to believe. Don't hold an independent thought, uh, because if you do, we'll find out and you'll suffer the same fate. Uh, and that was the so-called auto de fe. Everything else between the public sermon and the public burning took place behind closed doors. But enough of this leaked out and enough of the details were speculated upon that people lived 
in dire fear of what went on behind those closed doors. And that was enough, in, many, in, in, in a real sense, that was the whole point of the Inquisition. It was to coerce people into giving up their privacy, giving up their private thoughts, their private beliefs, conforming to what they understood the church demanded of them, just to avoid being uh, finding out for themselves what actually happened behind the locked doors of the Inquisition. And, and isn't, didn't that go on today? Didn't that go on in Guantanamo as well? All the privacy that went on and all the secret stuff that went on, not just in Guantanamo, but in places, uh, you know, other countries that they uh, tortured and had their own inquisition from these Muslim people who many were never even charged. Most weren't charged. This is another comparison, a point of comparison. Uh, The Inquisition, once they arrested an accused or suspected heretic, might leave that person in jail for 20 years before they actually uh, tried and convicted and punished them. Uh, We've had uh, prisoners in Guantanamo who have not been charged with any crime, uh, and they've been there for eight or nine years, and uh, that's uh, another one point of comparison. But the, the point you've made, which is a very important point, is in a democracy, the legal procedure is transparent, or at least it's supposed to be. Right. You're supposed to know what the charges are against you, what the evidence is against you. You are tried in public. Uh, you are punished in public in the sense that uh, uh, prisons are meant to be uh, public institutions. They're not secret uh, prisons. And even the ultimate punishment that our society currently allows the state to impose, uh, the, the punishment of Death penalty. Yeah. Uh, that's still a witnessed public act. I mean, it's not by the general public, but right. there are always witnesses. Uh, what happened in the war on terror is that all of this was moved offshore, literally offshore. We were the Victims were sent to pr- secret prisons whose locations we still don't know with particularity. And what went on beyond, behind the closed doors of those secret prisons, we were not supposed to know. The, the photographs that leaked out of Abu Ghraib uh, which shocked us so much to see Americans, men and women in American uniforms, the uniforms of the great American democracy, uh, acting with such cruelty and heartlessness towards uh, men that they humiliated and debased and terrorized. Uh, this was not supposed to be known, and once it was known, it caused shock and revulsion, properly so. Uh, and that's really the whole point of of government in a democracy. It is supposed to be transparent so that we can see what our government is doing in our names. And when uh, people can act in private, terrible crimes and excesses can, can be committed. You know, also when you talked in your book about what's happened in Guantanamo and how they would strip these people, these you know prisoners, arrestees, they would strip them naked and they would put this dunce cap on. That's way back to what they did with sure. men and women in the Middle Ages. Absolutely. The same cap, exact thing. The, the dunce cap is an iconic symbol of the Spanish Inquisition. It was meant to humiliate the victim and subject the victim to ridicule. And uh, we know even from pictures of uh, students who were put in the corner in a dunce cap in American schools that that was a, meant to be a form of debasement and humiliation. And, and the same thing went on at Abu Ghraib. 
Uh, and the, and stripping naked, and that one just kind of shocked me how, you know, the Catholic Church way back, even before the Spanish Inquisition, they would strip naked these men and women and torture them in, while, they're being, while they're naked and have these sexual deviancies, and this is the Catholic Church. That one just blew my mind. You know, this is, this is something that I write about, and it's worth talking about. Uh, the, the torture chamber I describe in my book as a kind of a theater. There was a show going on. Now, it was going on just for the amusement and entertainment of the inquisitors and the torturers and their, uh, you know, their assistants. They had quite a staff down there. Uh, but, and the argument can be made that the reason you strip the victim of torture naked is that it's much easier to torture them when they're naked. Right, uh, right. Torture includes applying hot irons to the flesh, pinching the flesh with, with metal tools, uh, uh, binding the flesh, beating on the flesh with sticks, uh, stretching the body on a, on a rack or what's called the strapado, which is uh, hanging the body from a, uh, from a rope and jerking it. All of these forms of torture were easier to apply and more painful if the victim was naked. So the argument could be made that was a functional consideration. But what you have pointed out is a fundamental issue of privacy. We, what do we call the sexual organs? We call them our private parts. Exactly. Because in our sense of human dignity in Western civilization, they are to be covered unless we choose to uncover them in private. Uh, so talk about invasion of privacy. The stripping naked of the victim was meant to remove their last vestige of privacy and dignity and to make them totally uh, uh, at the mercy of the torturer. Totally vulnerable. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about some of the famous victims of the Inquisition. Uh, there are some very famous people who we don't often think of uh, as victims of the Inquisition, uh, but who were, in fact, tried, convicted, and punished. And the most famous of all is Joan of Arc, uh, and quite an interesting figure. Uh, we would understand her today to be a political figure, a partisan, a guerrilla fighter. Uh, she was a, uh, and in, her, in the time and place where she lived in 15th century France, uh, for a woman to play this role was really quite remarkable. She was 17 years old. She uh, was inspired to support uh, a, uh, a man who was claiming the crown, the French crown, and who was fighting for that crown against uh, the English who had invaded France. Uh, she inspired the French army to go into battle. She put on a, a uniform and a, carried a sword into battle. Men's, men's clothing. Men's clothing. Mm -hmm. And she was, uh, fell into the hands of the English, or the, the enemies on the field of battle. And they wanted to disgrace her and discredit her, because she was a very heroic figure, as you might imagine. Uh, they wanted to make her out to be something worthy of contempt, and thus, they, and they were acting strictly out of political motives, they wanted to discredit the man that she was championing, the, the candidate, the claimant for the, the throne. So they did what the King of France had done with the Templars a bit earlier in history. They went to the Grand Inquisitor of Paris, and they said, put this woman, Joan of Arc, on trial as a witch. And, and you've anticipated one of the items of evidence. What was the evidence against her? Well, she wore men's clothing. This was right. considered to be a, a crime and a sign of, of sorcery and heresy. Right. Uh, Joan of Arc was tortured. Uh, she was tried at length, uh, and she was found to be guilty 
of heresy and witchcraft, and she was put to death as, uh, as a heretic and a witch, perhaps the single most famous victim of the Inquisition. The other great, a very famous victim, and, and there's some interesting uh, and unexpected facts about this story, is the great scientist Galileo. Mm-hmm. Now, what was his crime? It's the <laughs> ultimate thought crime. Right. His crime was that he thought that the Earth revolved around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the Earth. That was his crime. Right, right. Now, nobody could prove this one way or the other, given the technology at the time, but that was a, an astronomical theory, a scientific theory. And the Pope didn't like it. Pope said, you are not allowed to believe this. You must not believe this. Right. And if you believe it, you're a heretic and you have to be burned. Uh, now, what we don't hear often about Galileo, very, he is a, another very famous, perhaps an even more famous victim than Joan of Arc. Uh, everyone knows that he went before the Inquisition. Didn't but, he go, you said twice that he went before the Inquisition. He went twice, and yeah. on the first occasion, he was given what I would call a suspended sentence and an admonition. He was, said, uh, he was told he would not be punished as long as he didn't teach this uh, uh, scientific idea. Yeah, I think you said something in your book, like if he only said it was hypothetical or something like that. He got a little too clever for his own good, (laughs) thinking like a lawyer, I must say. And he tried to find a loophole, a legal loophole. He said, I'm not advocating this. I'm not stating that it is the truth. I'm only entertaining the idea. Now, that was too fine a distinction for the Inquisition. (laughs) They said, you were given a suspended sentence on the condition that you not teach this idea, uh, and now you've taught it again, and so he was brought back a second time. Now, this was a very dire circumstance because a, a relapsed heretic, someone who was accused of and convicted of heresy and given a mild sentence, and then who relapses into heresy, he was supposed to be burned alive. That was the punishment for a relapsed heretic. So he was at great risk. Uh, he managed to beat the rap by doing what the Inquisition really preferred all of its victims to do, and that is by confessing. So the great scientist Galileo, who we think of as a, uh, a champion of scientific freedom and a martyr to the, to the scientific method, got down on his knees in front of the Inquisitors and confessed that he was wrong uh, about the Earth revolving around the sun. He was wrong, and he was sinful and heretical in, in uh, entertaining that idea and promising not to. So he bought his life at, uh, at the price of his principles. Uh, now, I, I don't mean to condemn him. He was, in a, he was very frail. and uh, He was like 70 years old or yeah, something by then, huh? 72 and uh, going blind and quite, quite ill. So I, I, I'm not judging him for doing it. But, but, but shows, I thought it was interesting in your book, you said he did send his manuscript, though, to the Netherlands or something? Well, <laughs> one of the facts of history is that wherever the Inquisition... Uh, prevailed, science, commerce, technology, literature, all of the arts and sciences were uh, impaired. You couldn't do scientific work. You couldn't do uh, technical work. It's like dark ages, right? Exactly. You were living literally in a dark age. Uh, uh, Holland, by that point, was beyond the reach of the Inquisition, and he was able to get his manuscript outside of uh, Italy, and it was published in Holland. And of course, the Inquisition never managed to reach uh, England, where, where the Industrial Revolution and Scientific Revolution took place. Uh, and as a general rule, historians have, have proposed, 
progress was greatest and accomplishment was greatest in those areas of the world where the Inquisition did not operate. Right. And where it did operate, history shows us, uh, people led blighted lives. Yeah. We're speaking with a wonderful attorney, a fabulous, articulate author, and a uh, wonderful speaker as well. The gra- He wrote The Grand Inquisitor's Manual, which I have sitting here right with me. It is a history of terror in the name of God. We're speaking with Jonathan Kirsch. Jonathan, how long did the Inquisition last? And, and I know it ended with Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, Ferdinand and Isabel's daughter, right? Something like that? Well, it ended in 1834. So that was not their their daughter. It was their descendants. But oh, not okay. Their okay. Uh, it, that's Is a couple of there... hundred years after, well, a little bit more than that. Okay, uh, like a granddaughter. Or, or like uh, 400 years later. Yeah. Um, it's a descendant of Ferdinand and Isabella. Right. Uh, we have to credit or blame Ferdinand and Isabella for bringing the Inquisition to Spain in 1492. And uh, it remained active in Spain long after it had fallen into disuse everywhere else in the world. But it begins in the 1200s, the early 1200s. It ends in the mid-1800s. That's a 600-year span. Mm. Uh, And it took countless victims and did uh, immeasurable damage uh, uh, to to the lives of the people under lived under the authority of the Inquisition. How many, how many actual victims were there? Do you know? Uh, it's hard to count, and I have to say there's a lot of debate about this. I'll give you as just as one example. There are some scholars who say that a million women were burned as witches. That, that's, that's just one slice of the Inquisition. The Inquisition was persecuting a lot of people uh, besides witches or accused witches. Uh, but uh, scholarship says that more likely the death toll was 100,000 not a million. Wow. Now, how many people died at the stake, uh, burned at the stake, uh, over the 600-year uh, history of the Inquisition, including women accused of witchcraft and Jews accused of being secret Jews and Cathars accused of being the wrong kind of Christian and Templars and Galileo and Joan of Arc? I mean, it, it's it's a number we cannot calculate. Mm. But it's a... a we are still, here's the whole point of my book and I think of our conversation tonight. The whole point is that we are still living with these, uh, this injury uh, to, the, to Western civilization because the example of the Inquisition and the tools of the Inquisition uh, is still available and people are still willing to use it. The best example being, the clearest example being, the use of waterboarding and the war on terror. Yeah. Now, you wrote in your book, the Grand Inquisitor's Manual, you wrote in there that George Orwell's 1984 was really kind of, you know, a look backward at the Inquisition, even though that was written in the 1940s. Absolutely. You know, the conventional wisdom is that 1984 was a science fiction novel. It was a dyst- what we call a dystopia. It was about a future society where everything was going to go very, very wrong. And uh, the conventional wisdom is that he was uh, assuming that Stalinist-style uh, communism would prevail and that this was a terrible future that awaited us if it, uh, if it did. Uh, and, and that's true enough. I mean, he was, uh, George Orwell was concerned about precisely that point. But so much of what you find in 1984 is actually 
look back at the Inquisition, and, uh, and let me give you one really good example. Uh, Orwell very famously writes about thought crime, the crime of holding in the privacy of your own mind the wrong thought for which you could be punished in, in the world imagined in 1984. Well, uh, that's exactly, precisely what the Inquisition did in 1230. Uh, they inquired into the private thoughts of so-called heretics, and if they were convicted of holding a private thought, they were punished. That's a thought crime in medieval Europe. Another example, uh, Orwell described the violence that is done to language to conceal truth. He called it, in the pages of 1984, he called it new speak. Love is hate. War is peace. Right. Uh, concealing truth behind euphemistic phrases and doing violence to the meaning of language. Well, that was another uh, technique that was invented by the Inquisition. And we've already talked about the single best example. The public ceremony at which people were tied to stakes and burned alive, burned to death, uh, that's what, uh, what I would call being tortured to death, uh, was called the auto de fe. Well, what does auto de fe mean? It means act of faith. So that the brutal murder by torture of innocent victims is called an act of faith. Uh, that's the kind of Orwellian misuse of language that we find in 1984, except in this case it was taking place uh, 500 years earlier. Oh, it's incredible. I just have to say one thing. You know, I recently interviewed a scientist who was on 60 Minutes, Marcel Just, and they have an MRI machine that actually reads your thoughts. It's pretty scary. <laughs> and we talked about some of the privacy implications, and, and he wasn't really thinking about that. You know, the technology and privacy are not always combined. But we only have about a minute left. I, I love this book, and I love what I learned from it, but why don't you talk about the lessons that someone will learn um, from the deeds of the Inquisition, and, and kind of make it short because we don't have a lot of time. Absolutely. I, I think the, the simplest way to say it is that those who do not uh, study history are condemned to repeat it. Uh, and if we don't know what went wrong in the past, we won't know what can go wrong in the world we live in today. That's what my book is about. It is, and it was wonderful. Jonathan Kirsch, you are terrific. Just give your website, and people will go and look at the Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God. My website is www.jonathankirsch.com. Thank you so much. You'll go. You'll come back with the next book, okay? I'd be delighted. Thank okay, bye-bye. Uh, to, to join you today. Terrific. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. And look at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You can see pictures and bios of our upcoming guests. You can listen to archived interviews. You can download podcasts. And you can write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you so much. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.